book of Romans, this letter to the Roman churches. Perhaps uh, when you read Romans 16 and see the number of households mentioned there, perhaps five house churches in a certain quarter of, of Rome. Um, these churches had probably been predominantly Jewish, but after the uh, edict of Claudius who exiled the Jews for Rome, uh, uh, Nero comes and he allows the Jews to come back. So there's a good chance the churches there that would have continued uh, would have been predominantly Gentile. And there would have been some culture clashes that we read about in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And he's writing this letter here to bring these churches together in the common gospel that they all have for the mission that Paul believes God has called them to, to expand the gospel, not to build on any other man's foundation, but to see it go forward all the way into Spain. And Rome is to be an integral part in their support network for that mission of making disciples who make disciples. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, share with you, last week sometimes uh, is... These people scratching their heads as to how does this fit into the whole book of Romans. But when you understand the Jewish-Gentile component there, it helps make a little bit more sense. And I'm going to explain that more here. But I want you to imagine this. A group of laborers hangs out early in the morning at the tenth agency, hoping to be offered work. An employer comes by at 8 a.m. He invites several guys and transports them to his farm and agrees to pay them $100 for the day's work. At noon, he goes back and he invites another group and takes them to the farm. And then he does the same thing at 3 p.m. Then at 5 p.m., the day's almost over. He returns to that label pool and he gets a final group that he takes to the farm. Around 7 p.m., a farm's day is, all, is, is done, completed, and the men line up for their pay. And that first group worked ten hours. That second group, seven hours. That third group, four hours. And the last group, only two hours. And the foreman pays them beginning with the last group first. And they receive a hundred dollars for their two hours work. And word quickly spreads to the back of the line that the wage has been greatly increased. The last group hired worked only two hours and they got $100 or $50 an hour. Those in the first group who labored through the heat of the day, who could calculate it? $50 an hour? They received $500 for their day's work. That's a windfall. The other groups are processed through the pay line and they begin to realize that they're all receiving the same as the last group. That was hired $100 for the day, no matter what. And the workers in that first group are outraged. We worked five times as long as that last group did, if they received the same wages as we did. That's not right. We should receive more. That's not fair. And calmly, the owner of the farm replies, It's not right about your wages. You agreed to work for me for $100, and I paid you $100. What's unjust about that? The first group kind of stammers for a reply and he goes on, what I choose to do with my money isn't really your concern. As long as I'm with you, I can be as generous as I see fit with anyone I want to. What do you think? How's that work with your American values? 
You ever heard that story before? Or is it? Matthew, the Gospels, Matthew 20. It's a parable. Story Jesus told in Matthew 21 through 16. But Jesus gives to illustrate that in his kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, the kingdom of God often works opposed to the ways that things work in our human kingdom. This parable bears directly on Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. It's very unfortunate that passages like these have become clubs and dividing points between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. Paul's intent for this passage is to actually bring the Jew and Gentile together in unity, in humility in the church. And ironically, the Church of Christ today has used this passage to further drive believers apart. But I believe that when we understand the context, we'll together have hearts that are amazed at God's mercy and humble and brought together at the wisdom of God's plan to our Jewish Messiah who has opened the door of faith through His mercy on all the nations. So we want to tackle this question that comes up. Is God unfair? Is God unfair? And again, you might wonder, how does Romans 9 here apply to Paul's point in his letter to the Roman church? Well, you remember in Romans 8, preached several weeks ago now, that the apostles' last statement to the Roman believers is that nothing will be able to separate God's love from them in Christ. Romans 8, 39. And yet, undoubtedly, in the minds of many believers, there is this apparent contradiction in Paul's words. What about Israel? They were God's chosen people, and were obviously, for the most part, seen to be outside of God's blessing. If God had chosen Israel, how had he now unchosen them? And if he changed his mind about Israel, could he also change his mind about us? So perhaps the fear of losing the protection of God's love was raising its ugly head. But this proves to be an opportunity for Paul to show how the gospel is rooted in a story. The good news of Jesus is rooted in a plan, a promised plan that God made to Abraham. And Paul will help answer the question, why, if Israel's God's chosen people, why are there so many unbelieving Jews? If they were God's chosen people, why did more of them embrace the Messiah God gave them? <clears throat> That's part of it. But it's even deeper than that. There was a problem in the church between Jew and Gentile believers that was unfolding in wrong treatments of each other out of pride. Let's remind ourselves of the context here of this letter to the Roman church. Paul's letter to these five passages of Rome isn't, as I said last week, dead theology. Just putting doctrine out there for us. Oh, he's putting doctrine out there for us. But it's not dead. It's, it's pastoral. There's a, there's a counseling and instructing purpose to establish them in a mutual faith because there was a problem. The Jewish believers are fighting tooth and nail for their privileged status for the, in the church in Jerusalem. Remember, they come back to Rome after being kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. They've probably been the founding members of this church perhaps since Pentecost. And they come back and they find their house churches mostly Gentile. Which means 
The culture is very different. The Gentiles are eating different food in the house church get-togethers. And the Jewish believers felt was safe. There wasn't the carryover of the Moses law that the Jewish believers thought should be going on for custom's sake in other areas. The nations were coming into the church that was originally founded as the seed of Abraham. We laid the foundation for this, you can imagine them saying. And now this is how you are and what you do and what you allow? Unclean meats? Wine? Not celebrating the Jewish feast days? And so on? Really? Don't you know where the church of Israel's Messiah came from? Shouldn't we Jewish believers have more clout as to the practices of the churches? You Gentiles are the outsiders. We're the insiders. We've been here since 8 a.m. laboring. You came at 3 p.m. You're virtually still pagans. Yeah, you can put lipstick on a pig, right? But we're still God's chosen people, and our privilege should cut you down a few notches and look up at us on your knees. Paul writes, Romans 9 through 11, to circle back the themes that he's unfolded in chapter beginning in chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, you probably can't see this far back, but the book of Romans isn't like this, or I should go your way, this way. Lock, lock logics here. It's more of a spiral and repeating themes and expanding on them. And this particular chapter, 9 through 11, builds on what he has already said here in 116 through chapter 4, that salvation is through faith to everyone who believes, just like Father Abraham had faith. And he wants to show us in chapter 9 that the Lord is faithful to his promise to Abraham that Israel will be the one through whom all the nations will be blessed by the descendant of Abraham and David, Jesus of Nazareth. And so, to pick up, he says this, in chapter 9, and I'll read verses 14 through the end of the chapter. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Remember we saw verses 1 through 13 last week. And Esau and Jacob and Isaac and Ishmael. And the surprising ways God moves his promised plan forward. It's not linear. It's sometimes three-dimensional. And he says this, <clears throat> for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for the same reason have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. You'll say then to me, why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? Has not the potter power of the clay the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, 
which he had before prepared to glory. Even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the, day, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, descendants, we had been as Sodom and had been like to Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. The Lord is faithful to his promise to Abraham. When God was giving the law to Moses, <clears throat> a nation was rebelling against God and demanding that Aaron should make a God to go before them. Exodus 32. And so what did Aaron do? He fashioned what? A golden calf, right? And Israel worshipped it. It was a Pretty low point in Israel's history, wasn't it? And God's reaction was to tell Moses that he would do what? He would destroy Israel because of their blasphemy. And he said, well, I'll make a great nation from you, Moses, and your descendants. And what does Moses do? He pleads with God, right? He intercedes with God. To turn his fierce anger of a nation, his fierce anger against a nation, and his appeal is based on the basis of God's promise. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you swore by your own self that I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all the land I promised them. It'll be their inheritance forever. And then Exodus 32:14 says the Lord relented. He didn't bring on his people that disaster that he had threatened them. He spares his people. And he tells Moses to continue to lead them and promises that he's going to send an angel to protect and defend them. And Moses then pleads with God a second time that not an angel, but God should go with us. And then there follows this amazing encounter between Moses and God. And Moses said to the Lord, Lord, you've been telling me, leave these people. But you haven't let me know who you're going to send with me. You said, I know you by name and I found favor with you. Lord, if you're pleased with me, teach me your way so I know you and continue to find favor with you. And remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord says, my presence is going to go with you. And I'm going to give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know? The nations know that you're pleased with us and, and, and your people unless you go with us. What else will set us apart, distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth unless your presence is with us? And the Lord says to Moses, 
I'm going to do the very thing that you asked. So I'm pleased with you. I know you by name. And Moses said, Now show me your glory. What does the Lord say? I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you, in front of you. And I'm going to proclaim my name, Yahweh the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it's that very last statement there that's quoted here in Romans 9. Where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God just? Is he unfair? And in this story, in Exodus, there is a demonstration of utterly undeserved mercy to Israel on an occasion when God could have justly have wiped them out and started over with Moses. And so Paul chooses that quotation here, relevant to his purpose here. He wants his, re- his readers to know, these Jewish readers to know he's, what he's talking about when he says this. This was the epoch moment in Israel's history here. That all, when almost all the nation of Israel was rejecting Moses as their leader, who God had raised up to deliver them, God says this. As a nation, they were God's chosen people, but at that time there were very few hearts that beat for God, weren't there? And Paul here, at this time in history here, is looking at his fellow Israelites' rejection of Messiah. That, that was how he was, too, remember? On his way to kill the believers in Damascus. And their rejection of Messiah uh, uh, resonates powerfully with Moses' heart anguish here at the people's rejection of God. And what's more? Is even if God had wiped that nation out as he had threatened to do and started again with Moses, none of his promises would have been invalidated since they were to the nation as a whole, not just to an individual nation. And yet God didn't destroy them. He pardoned them. It was a sheer act of his mercy. And God's story of his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament is just a record of his long-suffering, Right? It just shows his, his desire that all should come to repentance. And Moses asks to see God's glory. And he is rewarded with a vision of all God's goodness. And God says to him in Exodus 33, You can't see my face, because no one's going to see my face and live. But there's a place where you can stand near a rock. And when my glory passes you by... I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. And I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. And so he shows him his glory. And where that happens is in Exodus chapter 34. And the Bible tells us the Lord descended in a cloud. And he stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the Lord passed before him and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity, uh, transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. He's a God of mercy. And Moses sees that. And he bows his head and he worships. And he says, If now I found grace in your sight, O Lord, go among us. We are a stiff-necked people, he says. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Did Israel deserve it? Nope. Was that going to stop God's mercy? Here's what I want us to see this morning. God has the right to open the door of mercy. The problem is, we think we know who deserves mercy. But the fact that it's mercy reminds us that it's undeserved. Now think about Israel here. Think about this church now. Why would they need to be reminded, the Jewish believers here, that God has the right to say, I can open the door of mercy to whom I want. Well, he's going to answer that a little bit more in verse 17. He's going to pound it in a little bit more. He says, Remember what the scripture said, and he's going to go back in Israel's story, back from Exodus 33, back to more toward the beginning of Exodus here, when Israel was in Egypt. He's going to say, scripture says to the Pharaoh, remember, for this very purpose I raised you up, so I could show my power in you, that my name would be declared in all the earth. And he uses that again to say this, therefore he has mercy in whom he has, on whom he wills, and whom he wills he pardons. And think about that story here. Some of you remember it. The Israelites, now grown in Egypt, and God raises up Moses, an amazing story in and of itself, to say to Pharaoh, let my people go from slavery so we can go to the promised land and worship. Pharaoh doesn't want to do that. He's going to lose his labor force, his free labor. But in the end, through the plagues, though Pharaoh's heart is hardened, God uses a Gentile king, Pharaoh's hardening to the Lord, for what? Israel's exodus from Egypt. And what he's telling the Israelite believers here in the Roman church is to remember that, what God did with that Gentile king for your redemption. And he's going to say to them, by implication, God will use Israel's partial hardening, words he uses later on in Romans 9-11. God will use Israel's hardening of the heart for the open door of the Gentiles coming to faith in Israel's true Messiah. And then he anticipates, Paul anticipates more questions from these believers. And he says, but you're going to say, well, why does God still find fault? I mean, who can stand up to God's will? This is what God did through Pharaoh here. and Pharaoh's hardening of his heart. And Israel was released eventually here through that. And God used that to show his glory. Remember the deliverance of the Red Sea, etc. 
And Paul will say in verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor, another to dishonor? He says, you, you, you can't shake your fist against God here about God opening the door here to the Gentiles here. He was Israelites. God, this is, this is God's mercy. This is consistent. This is his promised plan. Remember, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You can't, you can't shake your fist at God. You can't bring a lawsuit against God here. Bizarre, but, but true story. In May 2016, an Israeli man, ironically, uh, in Israel, he petitioned for a restraining order against God in the court system. Um, apparently, the plaintiff, plaintiff identified as Mr. David Shoshin, represented himself at a court hearing in Haifa, a port city in North Israel. And Mr. Uh, Shoshin, uh, the report noted that God was not present to defend himself. Of course, maybe God wasn't present, was present, but he didn't feel the need to defend himself. <laughs> Uh, but Mr. Shoshan told the court that God had been treating him harshly and not nicely, though he didn't give any specific details about what exactly had happened to make him feel this way. And Mr. Shoshan explained that he had made several attempts to contact police to report God's alleged crimes against him, and that patrol cars in the record, police record had been sent to his house on ten separate occasions. And police advised Shoshan to try taking out a restraining order. And the request for this restraining order there in this day in court was denied by the presiding judge who said the request was delusional and that the petitioner required help from sources outside of the court. I'll have to say this. Any objections of unfairness of our God are delusional. He's in the heavens, Psalm 115 says. He's done whatsoever he is pleased. And it is always good. He takes the unlikely. He defies our human logic. And he works something greater than we can imagine and leaves us with our jaws dropping when it's all said and done. And so this quotation here about the potter and the clay in 19 and 20 closely paraphrases Isaiah 45, 9. And these Old Testament quotations are so important to understand the context and the thrust of what Paul's saying here. Psalm Isaiah 45, 9 talks about uh, speaking to, to Israel. It says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? And that is coming in Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 44, 28. There's an objection that Isaiah is referring to with Israel because God was going to use Cyrus. A Persian king, a Gentile king, to accomplish his saving purposes for Israel and let Israel return. And Israel's thinking about this. They find out it's going to be a Gentile king who's going to have a spotlight on him. What would the Lord be thinking by, by, by destroying our popes? How can he bring this off by using a, a conqueror? We are in exile to him, and he's going to liberate us. You're using a Gentile conqueror to free Israel. In their minds, under a Gentile liberator, the people would in principle return to the same situation from which they've been deported. And it'd still be under 
Gentile ruler just in Jerusalem. God promised this Messiah revival. Couldn't get their brains around. The Cyrus plan, they just saw as a though they wanted to return to the land, that you're going to use it. Who you call my servant Cyrus? Where are your servants, Lord? And yet somehow God's plan demonstrates righteousness. That so the nations say to God's people in Isaiah 45, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides you. In Isaiah 45, 13 and 14. And Paul uses that story and that quote to fire a shot over the battle of these Jewish believers. Potter and clay. God's choosing and calling Israel. Reminding them what would happen if Israel, like a lump of clay, failed to respond to God-molding Gentiles in his hands. And Paul says this in verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering? The vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had before prepared to glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, in the unfolding of his promised plan through Abraham to the nations in Israel's story, God used even hardened believers like Cyrus and Pharaoh. Hardened unbelievers. To whisk his open door onto its fulfillment. To open a door to the Gentiles also. Doors open. And then he's going to anchor this again in Hosea. We don't have time to go through the book of Hosea, but the idea there is God had a prophet Hosea have a wife named Gomer, who ended up being a very adulterous woman, and God wouldn't let Hosea divorce her, and he says, you're going to stay hitched to her. And you're going to take her when she's offered up on the slave market, and you're going to buy her back. It's going to be a picture of my love for Israel. And so in verse 25, he says, as he says also in Hosea, I'll call to my people, or my people. Her beloved was not beloved. He's talking about Israel at a time when they had reached such a low point in rejecting God that he referred to them as not my people. That hurts, doesn't it? You think of what, of what he said in 9, 1 through 13. Jacob have I loved, Right? And Paul takes that promise to restore them. That people who one time I said were not my people. Those who weren't beloved. Bring them back. He takes that promise to restore Israel as an indicator that God would this is this is God's ways. He did it to Israel, he'll also do it to the Gentiles. He's gonna flip the tables here. All those things you enjoyed as Israel here with God's love. God's going to do through a new covenant here also with the Gentiles. In verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And then he's going to say, continue there in 
the Old Testament, Hosea. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And he's going to quote Isaiah. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. He'll finish the work. He'll, he'll keep his word. He'll cut it short in righteousness. Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And remember, as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us in the Senate, we had been as the Sodom and been made like the Gomorrah. Remember what happened there? Those cities were wiped out. And Isaiah saying, hey, God could have done the same to you, but he left, he left us a portion here in Israel's history. And what he's saying is this. Paul is deeply concerned that the majority of the, his nation Israel was opposed to the gospel. You can see this very clearly in his day. He was persecuted for it, right? Going to the synagogues and our, 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 our Lord and Savior as well at the cross. And he's now pointing out that God told Isaiah, though Israel might be very large numerically, a lot of Israelites, there's only a small number who are a remnant of believers. In the Old Testament in these quotations here where it's warning about a time that would come and Israel would oppose the message of salvation. And Paul's saying, I'm living in those days now. But God's promised to leave a remnant. And, and I'm, I'm one of those remnants and so are you. As well, Jewish believers. And he quotes Isaiah and says, God, if you hadn't left that remnant, we would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah, an ash heap. He's going to have better things to say about Israel. Romans 11 and God's hope and future here. What he's saying. And he's going to tell him how these vessels of wrath are going to become vessels of God's mercy. But what he's saying is this. Look in verse 30. What's he bringing it towards? What he's already said in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 about faith. Faith is the way we come to the Lord Jesus. For as you in time past have... <clears throat> oops, sorry. I'm skipping over a chapter here. Um, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which follow not after righteousness, have obtained a righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Wherefore or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. What he's saying is this. There it is. He's going to build on this in chapter 10. Israel was to be agents of blessing to the other nations by showing God to the nations. I appreciate your attention this morning. This is, you know, we're not, um, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the days of creation or, you know, um, uh, Daniel and the lion's den. And, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting, Paul's digging into some meat here, right? But, he, but he's doing it for a purpose. He wants to bring us all in unity here. Israel is to be agents of blessing the other nations by showing God to the nations, sharing the good news, called out to rescue others. And they didn't. They made a gift that God gave them all about them instead of God's undeserved goodness. But that's not how God's economy is received, is it? It's by faith in the message of the good news. A trusting to the Messiah. A committing to Him. The saving King of Nazareth, Jesus, 
the God-man, perfect in every way, crucified as a willing substitute sacrifice, buried, raised again to life as the victorious one over sin and death, ascended into glory, returning to be the conquering king. The sum of stumbling block. They want to be their own master, like Israel, their own savior, master of their faith. But it has never worked. Never. It always fails. And it always doomed from the start and results in destruction for eternity under the just wrath of God. And this passage is telling those of you who are following that same path, come to Jesus. Turn and trust. You see, Christianity, as someone has said, is the unreligion. It turns all our human religious instincts on its heads. One writer said, the ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. And so those who believe by faith, he's saying at the end of this chapter, he's provided for them. They will be put to honor, not shame. Turn to him in a repentant heart and trust, and you will not be cast out in shame and outer darkness and judgment, but welcomed as a son through the Son, is what Paul's saying. God can't be your grandfather. You can't be his grandchildren. You can't ride in on mom and dad's coattails. Or your faithful spouse's coattails. Or some attachment to something. It's a person. Jesus. What about us? In this part of the letter to the the Roman church. I think you can wonder, like Israel, what God's doing. Think of it nationally here. We can draw lines here where God doesn't draw lines and wonder why He's showing mercy to people we don't believe should be showing mercy. Think about where we are in history here with us as a nation. There's Christians in a nation that was much more sympathetic to Christianity in the past and borrowed from its values, to say the least, right? And probably feeling more like exiles than at the margins. And then you hear stories about what God's doing in other parts of the world. Of how the spotlight of God's mercy is furiously at work behind the scenes in the Middle East. That Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. 
that Muslims are being swept into the kingdom in incredible ways that you're not going to hear about on the news. That Ishmael's children are coming to Abraham and David's Messiah. And then you have this 10 to 40 degree latitude, this band around the globe here, that contains generally the most uh, closed and persecuted uh, church countries in the world. And yet, that is where God's mercy has been hard at work. In Asia, particularly. The nations are coming to the obedience of faith, as Paul would say in the Romans. A door of faith has been swung open. There's a spotlight of God's mercy there. We don't see that kind of growth and progress here, do we? Does God cast us off? Will we still be faithful to His promise? Is the door of mercy closed here in Midcoast Maine? We can see the dwindling lights of our country and our area of New England and Maine. Remember former glory days from all the way back to the Great Awakening in New England, breaking out and revival sweeping through in the colonial days to yesteryears of other memories. And look at today and it seems like slower rates of growth and discouraging decay and apathy and perhaps feel like Israel. Aren't you the God of promise? I mean, why so much there in the 1040 window of the globe and not here? Well, there's a remnant. Lord, as they close the door. I'm seeing physical faces here today. The door doesn't seem like it's wide open. Things don't seem like they're going gangbuster for the kingdom. The door is still open. He hasn't shut it. And as believers are faithful in prayer and walking humbly with the Lord and not wasting opportunities to testify of the Messiah, the light is spilling into the darkness. He is not done. We have a mission to make disciples and make disciples. We exercise, we train, we serve, we pray together, we engage the world, we seek the good of our communities, exiles, we evangelize, we practice hospitality, we love the brethren, we believe the promise. That's on one scale. What about each other? Our church. Who here would you never go on vacation Who might you have feelings against like the Jewish and Gentile believers did in those Roman house churches? Whose culture, whatever it is, just grates against you and you have put up walls of animosity and are blocking the blessing of the Lord that comes with brothers and sisters dwelling in the unity of our one faith, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I heard a preacher tell a story about um, him as a little boy, he was, him and his dad were sawing through a log that had a rotten core and a piece of wood broke off that looked just like a horse's head to him. So the boy took it home and then he gave it to his dad as a present. And he said, I attached a length of two by four board to that log head, attached a rope tail to it with a nail, stuck on some sticks to act as legs. Then I hammered halfway on a dozen or so nails down by the two-by-four body of the horse, wrapped the whole thing in butcher block paper, put a bow on it, and presented it to my father. 
And he took off the wrapping and he smiled and said, thank you, that's wonderful. What is it? <laughs> it's a tie rack, Dad. I said, so you can put your ties in those nails going down the side of the horse's body. And his dad smiled again and thanked him and he leaned the horse against his closet wall because those thick legs couldn't hold it up. And for years he used it as a tie rack. My pastor, preacher said, when I first gave my father that rotten log horse and tie rack, I really thought it was good. In his childish mind, his, his creation was a work of art ready for the Metropolitan Museum. <laughs> but as he grew older and matured, he realized that the work was not nearly as good as what he had once thought. In fact, he began to understand that his father had received and used that gift not because of its goodness, but out of his As a father. In a similar, similar way here, our Heavenly Father receives what we give Him not so much because they deserve His love, but because of His goodness, because He's love. Sometimes we can think we're pretty special, can't we? Like Israel. We can think that God's got, got so much when He got us, right? Well, what's remarkable about us, remarkable about us, is the mercy that God showed us that we didn't deserve. His kindness and goodness. And that's what loving, humble hearts warm themselves by, that truth. Can we forget the same God who threw open the door of mercy to us, who also threw it open to others in our church, and outsiders who will still call through his gospel? Have we marveled in the stories of how God worked in their lives just as he has in our story to bring us to Jesus our Messiah? But the story of our lives is not that I got on the bus at 8 or I got on the bus at 3. It's not what time we came and worked on the farm, but that we got to work on the farm because the farmer opened the door and said, come on over. In New York City, you take the subway and you stay on the same line uh, and you don't have to exit the subway stations. You pay the same fare. Whether you're going just to the next stop or whether you're going all the way from Coney Island to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Forget what it is now. Might be three something. It was like a dollar when I was riding it. As long as you stayed on that train, you stayed in the system, you paid the same amount, Take you to your destination. Some of us hopped on the train late. Some of us got here different ways. But we all came through the one way. Do you know each other's stories? Do you know the path the Lord's led them and the areas of their lives is helping them conquer for His glory? Their gifts? 
You know people needing other people need encouragement just like you do? What like the believers there in Rome do we need to humble ourselves from and come again to the foot of the cross? Sometimes churches can shoot their own teammates, right? And by the way, I'm not speaking of anything particular. I'm just drawing general application from this passage. And I was looking for application. <laughs> Romans 9 is, I was thinking, how, we, how, how does this thrust and, 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 and push to us today? Here's what it is. I think he's going to push on these themes here. In Romans 10 and 11 and then again in 15. But he's going to say, join in the mission together. His brothers and sisters, lift high the name of Jesus together. Our great Redeemer. From the promise of Abraham, from the seed of David, the house of Israel, God has the right to open the door of mercy. And many times and most of the time He does that to who we think least deserves it. Namely ourselves. Praise Him for this. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder if there's someone here who, like Israel, is pursuing your own salvation through your own ways. Ten out of ten times, it's not going to work. Always been doomed from the very beginning. And today's a day where you say, I'm resting in Jesus, Messiah. I wonder if you'd indicate that this morning and say, Today's the day I'm coming to Jesus. With a raised hand or acknowledgement here this morning. And brothers and sisters, your siblings, and Jesus, maybe there's things here you need to confess. Maybe there's a pride that is steeped in. Maybe we've forgotten that anything that happens to us is because of God's mercy. Any good is from Him. Maybe there's some wrong attitudes that need to be made right. Maybe there's some mistreatment. Other people things to be Repented of and corrected. Maybe there needs to be some pondering of our Lord who's thrown open the door of mercy. Great is His faithfulness. But the Israelite says all day long, I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying or back talking people. Lord Jesus, we 